The Single Tracks podcast is brought to you by TPC, the pros closet. Now is the perfect time to upgrade, and TPC has an industry-leading selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes, plus frames, wheels, and accessories. Each certified pre-owned bike is inspected, tested, and serviced, and every bike includes 30-day returns. Visit tpc.bike forward slash singletracks and enter code singletracks40 to save $40 on every order over 200 That's the pros closet at tpc.bike slash singletracks. And look for the link and coupon code in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Singletracks podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Yvonne Kraus. Yvonne is the executive director of Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance, a mountain bike organization dedicated to creating, maintaining, and protecting sustainable mountain biking opportunities in Washington. Evergreen, if you didn't know, is one of the largest, if not the largest, statewide mountain bike associations in the U.S., with eight regional chapters and thousands of members. Thanks for joining me, Yvonne. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So tell us a bit about Evergreen. How'd the group get its start? Yeah, thank you. Uh, So we've been around for quite a while now. The group formed in 1989, and it was actually two groups that joined forces back then. In 1999, a group called the Concerned Off-Road Bicyclists. Corba Mm -hmm. started and just a year later the Backcountry Bicycle Trails Club started Hmm. and uh, those two groups joined forces uh, under the Backcountry Bicycle Trails Club name but under the Corba not-for-profit license that had been issued Mm -hmm. and um, that's how it all started basically in response to trail closures that were happening all throughout uh, the West, the Pacific, Northwest, and beyond. And really just one year after IMBA got started nationwide. Mm, Wow. So were those two groups focused on like a particular part of Washington? Were they like sort of regional or, or were they kind of looking at the whole state back then? Back then, it was very much local, um, and particularly mm. Backcountry Bicycle Trails Club, led by Art Tufty and Len Francis at the time, uh, was about advocacy and beginning to create a relationship with land managers uh, to make the case for mountain bike trail development, mm. doing a lot of maintenance work and starting the education program. So getting folks to come to group rides, um, creating community, getting people together in a venue specifically for mountain biking, doing that community engagement, and then starting an education program for both kids and adults. Hmm. Okay. So I believe I read that you joined Evergreen in 2015. What were you doing before that? Yeah, my background was in consulting, uh, first public involvement. Then I got really um, excited about opportunities in green building and climate change policy and hmm. ended up doing uh, for-profit consulting work for about a decade, um, then switched over to not-for-profit environment doing green building, climate work, and then in the end, energy efficiency uh, work. So my background was you know, to some degree in natural resources, but certainly a care for the natural world, the environment and climate, mm-hmm. and have always been very active in outdoor sports and uh, was basically informed by a good friend of mine that this position was open. And she said, <laughs> you know how to run a not-for-profit, you know how to run teams and you love biking, this job is for you. And that's uh, that's how I got here. Cool. Well, do you think like being a consultant is a, a good preparation for this job. I I feel like 
I think it was the executive director of the Vermont Mountain Bike Association also had a consulting background. Is that, is that like helpful in your role as an executive director? Absolutely. Uh, All we do in terms of the trail work project development is consult um, and collaborate with clients, land managers, partners, um, allies on making the case and how we're going to actually fund, um, manage, and then implement and construct the the trail projects that we build. Hmm. Um, And so I do think that the consulting background is helpful, particularly in the construction world, because ultimately once those projects are live, we are running a pretty significant construction crew here at uh, Evergreen Hmm. and uh, have been somewhere between about a million to $2 million worth of projects every year. This year, we seem to be on track to break uh, break the two million dollar mark um so that's a that's a big accomplishment for us yeah for sure and so yeah i mean we mentioned in the intro that evergreen is is one of the largest i think you guys claim to be the largest uh, statewide mountain bike association in the u.s how do those chapters fit underneath the evergreen umbrella like how does how's everything set up as far as the organization goes yeah, so we have one not-for-profit license, basically. So we're incorporated as one not-for-profit. Um, and under that, we run the eight chapters. So those eight chapters are not their own individual 501c3. So that mm-hmm. differs a little from, um, for example, how Vimba works in Vermont. Mm-hmm. But we run it under one statewide organization. Okay. Chapters join when they're ready to join or when groups feel like uh, they need help, they want to join or there's momentum in an area of the state where Evergreen may not have had a presence. Mm-hmm. We don't seek that out, basically, but we're there to help on a statewide basis. And then if groups want to join, um, we're all there for them. Um, so that's led to eight chapters to date. Okay. Uh, our work at the statewide office, which is in North Bend, Washington, is very much done with the statewide lens to support all of the chapters in their growth. Mm-hmm. Most of the chapters have now gotten to the point where a, either they have been able to hire staff or they've been able to land their first paid contract. And that's really our goal is that those chapters become independently staffed, independently um, operating organizations. But we as a statewide alliance provide the insurance support, the advocacy support, the funding when they needed. And we still handle all the statewide funding campaigns. Okay. As well as, you know, a statewide mountain bike festival to create that umbrella identity and brand around all of the great work that's happening across the state. Hmm. Interesting. Well, how many paid staffers then are, are part of Evergreen, like at the, the corporate level and then also like within the chapters? Yeah, you know, the, the admin team is still remarkably small considering what we get done. Uh, it's a, it's an amazingly effective little team. Um, and I love working with them all. There are, uh, just about 11 admin staff now. Oh, wow. And then we have in the wintertime around 20 full-time trail builders who stay with us year round. Okay. And that, uh, basically doubles in the summer, hmm. you know, in the high thirties in terms of contract to trail employees across those eight chapters. Hmm. Interesting. Where do those, I mean, this brings up another question, uh, but who, like, who are these contract trail builders that you bring in in the summer that are just sort of like seasonal workers? Where do you find folks that are up for doing that? 
Yeah, a lot of them are return employees at this point, um, particularly in the established chapters that have snow in the wintertime. Hmm. We're able to employ the same folks who come back to us and may work at the ski resort in the wintertime or mm -hmm. um, have uh, alternate yeah. employment. So the seasonal staff, there's a lot of return crew, which makes life a lot easier. And then we also hire seasonal staff from all over, really. Um, a lot of times we have an opportunity to hmm. hire on a really dedicated volunteer every once in a while we're able to hire um, uh, staff we've worked with on projects from agencies we had builders join us from uh, from colorado we have mm. builders join us from um, california um, so it's been varied mm. and i forgot to mention you know as as the team sort of you know almost doubles in size in the summer a lot of those contracts that we have have been large-scale contracts so we've been able to offer the consistency of multiple year employment hmm. uh, but we certainly have some annual folks coming through as well yeah interesting we also have a lot of educators on staff so the total payroll for us and the total number of team members is over 90 employees now so Whoa. that's that's <laughs> that's really been a significant growth here in the last decade yeah, that's a ton. And I mean, I know a lot of trail groups, I've heard some of them use like high school students or like maybe college students in the summer. But I mean, it sounds like you're, you're really working with people who are like dedicated, like grown ups, adults, like people who are, these are like real staff employee people who like have skills and, and know what they're doing. It's, it sounds like a very professional organization for sure. Yeah, thank you. I and mean, we've certainly hired uh, new builders at the Trail Builder One level, um, some right out of high school. And actually, one of our trail builders joined us when I think he was 16, 17, mm. and is still with us now and is yeah. one of our most experienced operators. But I've, I've certainly um, made that my mission is to turn the trail building profession into a livable job. Mm. It's not easy to do. Yeah. Our grant amounts are usually restricted in what we can or cannot do or pay. We have to augment a lot of our grants with member donations, project donations in order to make it all work. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've worked hard to, you know, in the beginning, it was an hourly job with a lots of rotation in staff and no benefits to now have it be mm -hmm. a livable wage with benefits, PTO, a health stipend, um, communication stipends for the crew. Um, and I think that is really important if somehow in some way that consistency and funding can be created that keeps the crew with us and then keeps the knowledge mm. and the know-how uh, in-house. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome to be in that position to be able to do that. Talking about the chapters, how do you, you kind of went into this, but how do you divide responsibilities between uh, what you're doing at sort of the, the corporate level, the top level organization, and then what do the chapters do kind of on their own? How do you split, split those tasks? Yeah, it differs a little bit from uh, chapter to chapter, of course, depending on what kind of projects or what their planning landscape or their agency landscape looks like. Mm -hmm. For the most part, the statewide office is still very much engaged in advocating for statewide funding to be distributed to locations and chapters statewide, okay. uh, particularly where we see a huge need or where perhaps trail access is underserved or non-existent. Mm -hmm. um, so we do uh, most of the statewide 
advocacy in Olympia um, to uh, to ensure that our recreation and conservation office grant applications occur, that we identify the landscape planning and allow uh, for investments to continue to happen, mm-hmm. to have the chapters then be successful in implementation. Yeah. We provide project management services to them, and we always handle the hiring and the projects themselves through the statewide office. But the accounting, the income, the profit that may come in from those projects is all kept in the chapter's books. Hmm. The statewide office, as I mentioned, I think uh, provides the insurance, the volunteer program management, Mm -hmm. all of the support staff when it comes to creating newsletters, doing local meetings with elected officials, for example. Mm -hmm. But then we 100% still rely on the dedicated volunteers within the chapters to actually make the -the on-the-ground work happen. And so the volunteerism, the community building, oftentimes the education programs is all done by just the great people who make up the mountain bike (laughs) community and just have so much passion and dedication to what they do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, it's a great model that's that's working really well there. So you also mentioned that Evergreen got its start in the late 80s, kind of in response to some trail closures, I guess, hiking trails or trails like multi-use trails. Bikers were losing access to those trails. How have things changed since then in terms of the challenges uh, that Evergreen's facing? It's a good question. You know, that time was way before my time. So I wasn't part of the advocacy and the the focus messaging around that time. Mm -hmm. But the early founders spent a lot of time creating trust, rolling up their sleeves to help the agencies with actually taking care of the trails and then making the case that mountain bikers have a place in Mm -hmm. um, the non-motorized trail space. Yeah, That turned into an initial contract for doing work. Uh, It was actually in Kirkland, so a very urban environment at Big Fin Hill, where we had our first official agreement to do trail work. Okay. And then continuing advocacy and trust building and being at the table when it came to landscape um, and recreation planning along with the Washington Trails Alliance, the Backcountry Horsemen, uh, locally an organization called the Mountains to Sound Greenway. Mm-hmm. We more and more became a respected partner at the table right? and eventually landed our first professional trail building contract with the Colonnade in the, in the city of Seattle. Mm-hmm. And that turned things around. Now there was a contractual agreement. We could hire our first staff. Uh, Justin Vanderpool was hired and really laid the foundation for that Colonnade contract mm-hmm. to come to be. And uh, it's, it, the, the, the change has been, you know, lots of trail building and lots of projects, uh, hundreds yeah. of miles of new trails across the state, all done through professional cost share agreements, partnership agreements, direct vendor agreements. I mean, we, this is where the consulting side of things came <laughs> in handy and understanding yeah. that procurement environment um, and mm-hmm. the different routes that we can take to get trail contracts signed. Hmm. Interesting. However, I will say that now, I see that environment changing a bit again and Mm. uh, more concerned with the increasing growth, uh, increased use on trails Mm -hmm. and increased concern about the impact of the mountain bike community on the multi-use space. Um, So we might be in a wave where this advocacy may need to be increased again. Hmm. Yeah, 
Right. I think that's really interesting. I mean, for a lot of mountain bikers who have been doing it for a while, you know, in the early days, we kind of had to justify ourselves and like say, hey, like we're trail users too and we're responsible. And, you know, a lot of groups, including Evergreen and, and others around the country, did a great job with that and established themselves as being, you know, good contributors to trails. And, and yeah, you're right. Now we're seeing a shift. I mean, why, why do you think? Are people singling out mountain bikers per se, like that this increased trail use? I mean, it's, it's all groups, right? I mean, it's hikers, it's bikers. So is it, is it something directed at us or is it just more of a general thing where everybody is saying, Hey, how do we deal with more visitors to our trails, whether they're hiking or biking or riding horses or whatever? Yeah, the, um, I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that are happening right now on our trails. Increased numbers, uh, with the COVID mm -hmm. explosion in the outdoor recreation world, investment in recreation that's not quite keeping up with the need for additional access. Um, here in Washington state, uh, much increased focus on the impacts of recreation amongst the tribes. Uh, yeah. And then that combined with, you know, forest fires, climate change. There's just, we're at this nexus of what do we do with our outdoor recreation space? How do we mm -hmm. keep it sustainable? How do we maintain our positive working relationship with the conservation organization who have helped us mm -hmm. a lot and who we collaborate with in any new trail project proposal to identify the most sustainable way to create, you know, a trail network that has the most amount and the highest quality mm -hmm. user experience with the least amount of environmental impact. Right. So the tribal concerns around that right now are quite significant. Hmm. And ultimately, the conservation groups and the old issue of does mountain biking have a space in the non-motorized trail world? We are still, I, just for lack of a better way to saying it, we're still a very easy target to A, say that we are causing conflict on the trail mm -hmm. and B saying that our technology has advanced so much that we're no longer a um, compatible use. Mm, yeah. And so that's the conversation that I'm now hearing more again. And, you know, when we're in these times of challenging access, um, a little bit more conflict, mm -hmm we tend to focus in on things that we think we can control, yeah. right? And when there are concerns on multi-use trails, it is a fairly easy argument to make to say that mountain biking is no longer compatible, the conflict is too high, the risk mm -hmm. has increased. Yeah. And that conversation didn't exist a decade anymore. Hmm. But now I'm hearing that again. And that's why I'm saying I feel like we're a little bit back in that cycle of having to yeah. redo advocacy. Because the reality is um, our impact is fairly limited as long as we behave. Right. We are right. absolutely a compatible use. Trail yeah. design can ensure that it's a compatible use. And we're the ones who are rolling up our sleeves and actually take care of the trails. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of positives for sure about what mountain bikers are doing for trails. And I mean, you mentioned conservationists. I mean, I would, I would put mountain bikers in that bucket too. I mean, I think most, absolutely. if not all of us are conservationists and we want to protect the places we ride. But yeah, the, I mean, is the behavior 
something that has changed? Do you think like mountain bikers are more or less courteous than they used to be? I don't know. Like, is it, or is it, I mean, for me, from my perspective, it seems like it is just this case of there's just more of everybody on the trails and, and that right. alone is going to cause a bit more conflict. And yeah, hopefully we're not, we're not getting, we're, we're still on our best behavior, hopefully. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, in my personal experience, I really rarely, if ever, have had a negative trail experience or interaction, even, you know, uh, with all the users, uh, whether I'm on a motorized trail, a non-motorized trail, whether I'm riding a horse or trail running or hiking, I believe that for the most part, everybody is out there to enjoy themselves and the trail interactions are positive. Mm -hmm. But in social media and during planning processes, we often hear comments about that incompatibility, the concern amongst the backcountry horsemen for um, potential risk. Uh, and I think, you know, mountain bikers have never shied away from technology. And because we're constantly changing our user experience, mm -hmm. because we have changed the way we build trail, mm -hmm. uh, we cater to different types of riding styles now, right? So mm -hmm. different types of trails, that's not something that is acceptable to a hiker sometimes or a, or an equestrian. So that's right. where the rub is and the conflict is. Um, however, all of those trail evolutions are done and designed to actually provide a higher quality user experience for all mm -hmm. um, and to create spaces where we share the trail together, where it's possible and a high quality user experience and then separate where needed, where the potential for risk could be introduced, you know, directional yeah. downhill trails, for example. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thinking about compatible use, like what, what does e-bike trail access look like in the state of Washington right now? I know the state was one of the early ones to kind of put into legislation, like definitions and things about e-bikes like where where are we right now in the state in terms of that access yeah it's still a murky environment unfortunately um mm. evergreen's been quite active uh, facilitated a seven-month committee uh, to come up with perhaps common ground and a policy recommendation mm. to answer the first question we uh, are in an environment where the state legislation adopted e-bikes as non-motorized bikes that's mm -hmm. being applied in the urban environment but it's been a little tricky to identify what to do in the um, backcountry environment oh, on single track trails that are unimproved surface, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. The state agencies have been directed to come up with a policy. It's going very slow. They have just completed a near two-year process to obtain public feedback. The Department of Natural Resources and Department of Fish and Wildlife have completed the process, not created the policy yet, but they've gathered all their feedback. Okay. State parks, uh, Washington State Parks, adopted a policy for class one uh, access on their, their, their trail networks. So hmm. far, okay. that's been implemented without any issues. However, there's still a lot of perceived fear in doing that statewide amongst the other agencies. Hmm. Also, the Washington state tribes in an engagement process on that issue unanimously uh, voiced um, that they did not want e-bikes added to the trails just because of the pressure that are already existing. So they are yeah. uh, of unanimous opinion that adding another use is not a good thing at the moment. So hmm. the environment okay. is challenging. And then, yeah. of course, the federal national forest environment is what it is nationwide. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, do you think there ever will be a day when this is like more clear and, you know, everybody kind of agrees or, or are we, you know, looking at a future where everywhere is different? If you go to a state park, if you're riding on forest service, if you're riding in a city, all these places are going to have different regulations. Or do you think, do you think that there is some like solution that, that could work for everybody? Yeah, we um, at Evergreen came up with a recommendation adopted by the board as a result of the uh, seven-month committee process where we pulled basically every user and found out, well, most user groups can align along class one access mm-hmm. and most user groups are not okay with class two and class three when you're right. talking yeah. about non-motorized trails. We hoped that from the statewide agencies, there could be an open and less signed closed environment mm-hmm. um, so that as an e-bike user, for the most part, you can ride on a non-motorized trail with a class one e-bike. But if it's not allowed, it will be side closed. Mm-hmm. But to get there, to your point, it's it's going to take a, t- a long time. There has been a lot of talk about once a trail that crosses multiple land managers, uh, jurisdictions, once e-bike allow is allowed on one section, that mm-hmm. the entire trail would be designated the same mm-hmm. so that the user doesn't have to do the research. Because frankly, <laughs> right. that's just not going to happen, yeah. right? And oftentimes, particularly new users who are entering onto the trail um, for their first backcountry trail experiences or new mountain bikers um, may not even know whose land they're on. Mm-hmm. And... uh the, the challenge, the biggest challenge we have, I think, nationwide is that what the Forest Service decided to do um, with their e-bike policy is about the most complicated <laughs> and difficult option yes. to implement for e-bike access. Mm. So I am really concerned about, um, although I am, I am doing this and Evergreen will create a pilot project with the Forest Service. We've had initial discussions about that uh, with Region 6. But once mountain bikers need to connect with hikers and equestrians to request that their favorite trail system needs to be redesignated to a motorized trail system for e-bikes only, Mm -hmm. you run into challenges with the funding sources for a motorized Mm -hmm. trail system versus non-motorized being different. And it creates the fight. What's the incentive for the backcountry horsemen and the hikers to support that. Right. So there will be places where it's possible, but it is an incredibly difficult situation that we are in um, from the national forest perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super confusing and it, it seems like it is changing kind of all the time. And yeah, it's hard to keep up with, with what the rules are. I guess, I guess I'm just hoping one day it'll be much simpler and we'll know <laughs> where you can ride and where you can't ride. That is the hope. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, obviously Evergreen and your chapters, you support tons of great mountain bike trails throughout the state. What are some of the most popular trail systems in sort of the state of Washington and the ones that, that Evergreen's involved in? Yeah, uh, fun question. So, I mean, obviously, since we started in the greater Puget Sound area, the greater Seattle, Olympia, Tacoma, Everett area, uh, most mm-hmm. of the trails are um, developed here that are purpose-built. 
This is where we got our start. So North Bend, the city of North Bend, which is about a 40-minute drive from the city of Seattle Mm -hmm. um, in the foothills of the Cascades and on the way to the summit and the summit at Snoqualmie Ski Resort, Mm -hmm. North Bend has really established itself as the center of mountain biking here. Mm, You have Tiger Mountain with over 25 miles of trail, Raging River, which will have a total of over 30 miles of trail. Olali, which will have about, I think when we're done, 15 miles of trail or so, Hmm. Um, a small community ride park right in town that will open later this year called uh, Tenant Trailhead. Mm -hmm. Um, That will be connected to Raging River, so you can ride your bike right from North Bend uh, over to Raging River. Um, And then, of course, Ducey Hill Mountain Bike Park, where where we got our start, uh, the first real mountain bike park constructed by us after the colonnade. Um, that's still the most visited location in Washington state for mountain biking. And hmm, it's a wow. small park. It's only 120 acres, but there's eight miles of absolutely fun packed trails hmm, in, yeah. uh, in that park, really catering to all uses and, you know, almost a thousand. Um, well, we have 300 plus kids going through dirt camps there and then oh, wow. almost a thousand people in our education clinics every year. Hmm, wow. That's cool. Yeah. Um, is there so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like some of the more popular trails, just like a lot of places, are the ones that are close to where people live um, or the ones that they can get to, you know, maybe after work or like on a, a weekend day. Is there is there much of a push in the state of Washington for trails to drive tourism, like in terms of, yeah, these bigger projects that would maybe attract people from out of state? Yeah, absolutely. I just gave you the overview of sort of the hub and where we started and why there are so many trails. Yeah. Um, but uh, before I get to the tourism question, um, the other places to ride that have been built in the last decade are Chickadee, which is in Winthrop in the Methow Valley hmm. um, at Sun Mountain Lodge. I can't remember how many trails there are now, but a huge system there. We are building 30 new miles right now at Loop Loop Ski Resort at North Summit, Whoa. also in the Methow Valley. Our central chapters, that's all done by the Methow chapter, amazing riding area, definitely a tourism destination. Our central chapter is uh, has two really big locations that drive tourism every year. One is Ski Hill in Leavenworth and Freund Canyon, long established popular riding area, and then number two canyon mm-hmm. um which is in its fourth year of grant funding wow. uh it's a remarkable new system built by bikers for bikers but also multi-use mm-hmm. mount spokane uh so the east chapter has built a brand new directional downhill only trail at mount spokane the first um in that area mm. and then in the southwest of the state we have the yakel burn which uh there are three or four uh really spectacular mountain bike trails that provide a downhill experience with views and volcanoes and Hmm. just uh, absolute remarkable riding areas. And then lastly, in the West Sound, we just opened up a a new ride park. That's the most progressive park we've built to date. I was a little nervous because this was done (laughs) on public lands. And so the jumps there are bigger than we've built anywhere else. Uh, The Hmm. design is innovative. Uh, The West Sound crew there did an amazing job and it's already drawing a lot of attention. So there's no direct push for mountain bike tourism at the statewide level. Mm -hmm. However, the individual communities that have invested are very much seeing the benefits of that. Uh, Another 
very popular writing area that many people nationwide know about is Galbraith, mm -hmm. which is actually a non-evergreen uh, ride area run by the Whatcom Mountain Bike Coalition. Mm -hmm. And we collaborate with them, but they're doing awesome work. So we don't need to be there because they've got yeah. their mountain bike work taken care of. I collaborate with their executive director quite a bit. Um, and certainly they're People know about it. It's got an image, a reputation, a community around it. So that's driving tourism, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of recent projects, too, are these like sort of bike parks and like downhill optimized trails. Is that a focus? I mean, is this basically what your members are, are saying that they want to see? Like, how, how do you decide what type of project makes sense? Because I know those those are the harder ones to get approved in a lot of cases, like going to a land manager and saying, we want this like downhill trail or we want this like advanced riding experience. They're not always open to that, but it sounds like you've, you've been successful. So like what's what's kind of driving that? Yeah, well, we are very lucky in Washington State that we have a remarkable outdoor recreation grant system run through the Recreation and Conservation Office. Mm -hmm. So we apply for grants. And when we do that, they have a track for uh, development and planning uh, grant opportunities. Mm -hmm. So we can work with land managers and local communities to develop a vision, create a trail plan concept, mm -hmm. and then apply for the grant using the grant criteria to get that concept, hopefully a really high score to get it funded. Okay. Because mountain biking trail investment is so underserved in terms of recreation, when you look at where state agencies have put their dollars, you know, we have lots of boating facilities. We have lots of state parks and hiking opportunities. Mm -hmm. There are lots of equestrian investments from, you know, decades ago, mm -hmm. but there were very few mountain bike investments. So oh. we made the case that, you know, it was, I mean, to say it very directly, it's just time to start investing in mountain <laughs> bikers because there are this many mountain bikers in Washington state. Mm. Here's how big we are as an organization. Here's how many members we are have. And those numbers and that growth made that argument sort of a, a, a winning argument. Mm -hmm. On yeah. top of that, if there, if you can create a trail network and make the case for a dense near urban trail network that caters to all levels of riders will be maintained with community mm -hmm. elbow grease in the future, as well as dollars coming from our organization and we'll get kids riding in the park for a healthy outdoor activity. All of those messages score high in the grant programs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been sort of our recipe for making the case. Okay. On top of that, with our tribal concerns right now, keeping people in dense, high quality, highly entertaining, rich trail experiences close to urban areas prevents additional further back you know, impact in the backcountry because there mm. simply is less of a need to go there. Yeah. Ducey is a really good example of that. 120 acres with just about 180,000 visitors every year hitting that park mm -hmm. and probably more. You know, it's just, um, we thought that by now, because the park is now over 10 years old, we thought that by now people would have ventured on, but that's not the case. If mm. you build really good mountain bike trails that are entertaining. People will go there and they'll go there over and over again. Mm, and yeah. if you can make it a short, quick, after work, healthy lifestyle kind of setup, 
that recipe works. Hmm. And it's the real advanced writers who like that backcountry experience who still do it. But the newer communities like purpose-built, varied experiences, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a playground. It's a playscape. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah, circling back to the tourism question too. I mean, is that an effective thing in terms of grants or, or at least just getting approvals? Like, are you going to communities and saying, look, we'd like to do this trail project. And one of the advantages is increased tourism or, or are you having communities coming to you and saying, we want more people like, can you guys help us? Or, or is it kind of a mix of the two? We, um, it's absolutely a mix of the two, I would say. Rural economic development in small communities was a key message of our commissioner of public lands mm. uh, here. So we absolutely use that in our grant applications, particularly in areas that have no trails, have little trails or trail access. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, making the case that not only do we, do we create the trails, but then create social structure for after-school programs, for example, once those trails are in place, that scores with our grant program, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. In terms of direct tourism, as I mentioned, the state is not doing that yet. The agencies aren't doing that yet. Ever, the state, Washington state actually disbanded its tourism office a few years ago and just recently brought that back. So we, uh, we're looking for a little bit more tourism investment coming our way. And Mm -hmm. uh, the Washington Tourism Alliance, uh, is using a new app called the Tread Map app. Tread, uh, is out of uh, Wenatchee in uh, central Washington and, Mm -hmm. uh, they are really trying to promote not only the the availability of trails, but also the management of the tra- of the trails. So we talked a lot about grants. Obviously, that's a big part of the funding for Evergreen. What are some of the other primary sources uh, for your organization? Yeah, I think um, one thing to just immediately highlight is the amazing generosity of our membership and hmm. our riding community. Every year. We work incredibly hard to try and get projects to be shovel ready, Mm -hmm. both at the chapter level with volunteers and then myself, just again, understanding opportunities, being that consultant to come in and work with communities on everything from pump tracks to ride parks, to backcountry trails, to connector trails, to Mm -hmm. trailhead development. And oftentimes we either self-fund that work or we come up with a significant match so that we score really well in the grants. Uh-huh. So you've got the grants. We've got a lot of self-funding happening. We've There's instances where we've built our entire trail uh, with volunteer contributions and uh, membership donations. Hmm. Uh, we run that campaign every year. We highlight all the projects that are shovel-ready, and these don't get built unless you donate, and our community steps up. So Evergreen mm-hmm. wouldn't be where it is without its uh, members, absolutely. And then we have direct vendor agreements. Uh, we maintain a small park in Redmond through a purchase order with the city. We sometimes will get direct contracts through a, an RFP or a bid process. Mm-hmm. I come from the construction world, so we added ourselves to the Small Works construction uh, roster here in Washington mm-hmm. State, and so that allows municipalities to hire us. 
So it's really a, a, a number of different uh, resources that allow mm. these projects to come to be. And frankly, we're, we're crafty, we're nifty, and we'll try <laughs> to do whatever we can to, yeah. to, to get a project funded somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like too, I mean, you host a number of events during the year. Uh, are those like big fundraisers for the group or, or are those just more like social community building type things? We, um, it's a combination of both. So the end of year campaign and the membership campaign are absolutely about sustaining the administrative team to make all this work happen. Mm -hmm. Those are two campaigns that we run. Membership, uh, is, shifting. Um, and I think people's thoughts about membership are shifting, but mm. absolutely one of the most important things that you can do as a mountain biker is join your local mountain biking organization, alliance, or club. The more that we can show the numbers of riders that support access for trail, the stronger we are in our advocacy message. Mm. Even if you may not agree with the mountain bike's that you are a mountain bike alliance group or people or strategy or like become a member anyway, because ultimately that is what makes mountain bike resources come to be. Mm -hmm. And so get over your differences, right? And <laughs> right. support regardless, because we have to keep doing that as a community. We capture 2% of the mountain bike rider in Washington state mm. who are actually members. Yeah. And that's, that is a quite normal, uh, membership, uh, percentage mm -hmm. actually. So same yeah. for the Washington Trails, um, Alliance for Association for Hikers. We have to do better. Mm. We as a mountain bike community have to do better. So number one, join a club. You make a really great point about, I mean, I hear it all the time too. People say, you know, you ask them, why are you not? a part of, you know, IMBA or your local chapter or whatever. And people will say, oh, well, you know, I don't like this one thing they're doing or I disagree. But it's like, I mean, even those people, they love 80% of what the group is doing or 95% of what the group is doing. But they're, yeah, withholding their $35 a year over, you know, some minor thing. So, yeah, I mean, and and you, exactly. you said it earlier too, that you're able to get a lot of these grants and get trails built because you're able to show, you know, that you're representing a, a large constituency that uh, wants trails built. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like, I say it all the time. I mean, it's like a token amount of money that you're giving. I mean, that your $35 is not building any trail like at all. Like you give $35. That's, that's just to like, get your name on the list and say, yes, I support this group. And so, yeah, I, I'm totally, totally with you there. Yeah. So that was one in terms of your question of events, fundraising, community building. So we have, you know, we have our regular fundraising needs. We are now over 10 staff. So um, these, these staff need to be funded. Mm -hmm. That's membership dollars and that's your regular donations. Then there is a lot of community building that happens with events and chapters. Some of them mm -hmm. are direct fundraisers and others are just, let's get together, let's celebrate our community, let's celebrate the great work that we're doing, or yeah. come learn about how you can get engaged as a volunteer or become a volunteer um, instructor, for example. So there's multiple ways that we build community and raise funds. Two very 
standard campaigns, one project specific campaign that I talked about. It's like, mm -hmm. Hey, these projects, we did all the hard work. You can make <laughs> them happen. Yeah. And then things like mountain bike festival. There are movie nights. There are group rides. There are women's rides. There are now adaptive bike educational opportunities. So really expanding who we are as uh, an outdoor recreation community. And I think, uh, expanding our lens our reach and diversifying who we are mm -hmm. to to also showcase that i like to as as of as of late i've been saying we are mountain bikers but we are also disabled hikers hmm. yeah uh so how do we how do we service the disabled hikers in continuing the trail experiences and that's going to be on wheels so what can we do yeah yeah that's that's a great way to think about it and and to position mountain bikers as a group because yeah we are a very diverse group and and represent a number of folks are trail use fees something that evergreen or any of the groups that you work with utilize and and i mean like specifically there are there like donation boxes at trailheads or, or are there like places where people have to pay a few bucks to ride a trail is that something that that evergreen does in any of the locations no so we work Primarily on public lands. Mm -hmm. So we don't own the trails. We build them for a client. Right. The client manages them. And because it's public lands, there's usually a little resistance to any kind of commercialization of messaging at trailheads. Right. We don't even necessarily always get our logo uh, on a trailhead or a kiosk. That is not a given. And hmm. um, we don't mind or don't push for that too hard. What we care about is delivering a good quality trail experience experience to our members, right? And meeting a need. Yeah. So um, the answer to your question is no, but I will also say not yet. <laughs> there are trail systems where we are allowed to do so. Number two Canyon is a really good example of a very collaborative and willing uh, forest service staff who are basically saying, let's try this, um, mm -hmm. who allow us to put a QR code on, uh, put messaging on the trail, uh, about how you can get engaged and involved and how you can donate to that system for ongoing funding. Mm -hmm. So it depends a little bit on the land manager. Uh, I think we're going to see that changing. Um, we're seeing some fees popping up, right, in other areas of the country. Mm -hmm. yeah. But since we don't own any of our trail or our own networks, we we haven't gone there yet. Yeah. Yeah. How about any of the state parks? Do those have fees? I, I imagine some of them, maybe you have to pay like to drive your car in or park, but then once you're there, are any of the state parks like charging usage fees for bikers specifically? No, we have uh, a Discover Pass here for state parks. You know, there's the Northwest Forest Pass for uh, federal lands. Hmm. We really don't have uh, fee systems. Okay. The only place where where we have been engaged in that is when we recently last summer opened or built the trails at the summit of Snoqualmie mm -hmm. um, to open the, the bike park there. And so people, of course, pay for a ticket there to ride the lift. Yeah. That's a private operation. Right. Um, but there aren't any fee systems that I know other than private land. There, um, there are some timber companies that allow riding on their lands in between harvests and, uh, and you can buy a pass to get access to the land. Hmm. Um, there's one in Fall City here called Toko, very well-loved trail system. But if you ride there, you have to buy an annual pass to do so. Hmm. It's private. It's a timber company. So you are accessing private property. Yeah. 
And and in that case, are they? Do you know? Are they using that to fund trails, or is it just that this is their land and their company, and they're trying to make money? I don't know exactly how they use the funds, but they certainly have uh, staff out there. Uh, they have hmm. a little maintenance to to help with recreation activities. It's not just mountain biking. There's equestrian, hiking, and hunting use as well. Mm-hmm. They manage the gate keys, uh, so there's a, there's certainly an impact from us recreating on their land. Right. But how they exactly like we're, we're just happy to be able to ride there. So and we, we <laughs> right. all love those trails. And- better than not. Yeah. 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 Better than not being able to ride. It's a good point. So um, you mentioned, you know, some of the challenges and the things that go along with with running an organization like Evergreen. What's the biggest constraint that you face in terms of carrying out and growing your mission? That's a good question. Uh, right now, there's a couple of things that are becoming probably more urgent. Hmm. Uh, We're seeing a reduction in the amount of volunteerism Hmm. and a little bit of graying of our volunteers within, you know, who've always stepped up to come out and maintain trails. So Hmm. one of the things I think, you know, we're going to actually have a staff retreat next week to talk about how do we continue to stay relevant mm-hmm. and what are what are what is the staff sort of vision for the next strategic plan because we're beginning to write that in August, uh, in October okay so how do we continue to stay relevant within the newer riders and the younger generations who um and I'm repeating something that I've heard but we're seeing it in our numbers so these are not my words um but this idea that the younger generation doesn't look for existing clubs to find community. They create their own mm-hmm. right. and um, tend to join in those smaller groups. And so how how do we reach the younger generation and ensure they understand that joining a larger advocacy club is still really important? Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, the value of volunteering and the importance of volunteering, the trails on which you ride, we, Evergreen has taken over the SAW program from the Backcountry Horsemen. We always operated under their program with the Forest Service. We now have our own certified Sawyer uh, program with the Forest Service. And so get involved. How does this work? You know, like really getting um, the attention of folks to participate in our volunteer programs. Mm. And then, as I mentioned, just the impacts on our lands between all the recreationists that are out there. How do we deal with that? And how do we find balance, particularly with the tribal concerns? So I'm in the middle of that, trying to navigate the need for more recreation investment, yet the the resistance and concern about putting additional recreation resources and users on the land and the impact to habitat, wildlife, Mm. that'll be a really significant challenge for us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's like the original constraint, right? Like is land. I mean, there's, there's limited amounts of land and we have to take care of, of what we have and kind of maximize the opportunity while minimizing our impact on it. And yeah, that's, that's never going to go away for sure. So what's next for Evergreen? You mentioned the strategic plan uh, coming up that you're going to be renewing and looking at again. Um, and in some of these ongoing projects, what's, what's kind of on your radar for the next year or two? 
Yeah, I think uh, this uh, the, the the just simply the discussion about how do we stay relevant, where do we need to be next, what are areas in the state that are currently still underserved that need help, mm-hmm. how do we continue to strengthen uh, and build up our chapters? Those are all operational decisions that my mind's always spinning on, right? And <laughs> where are our resources best needed or required or urgent? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have um, a cost share agreement with our chapters and um, that always that requires a lot of dialogue on whether the chapters feel like they're getting the level of service and the benefit out of that cost shares. So that's always, there's a lot of just operational, how do we best run the business? Mm. So far, so good. Knock on wood, we're doing well, (laughs) but it's always at the top of my mind. The other part really is we as a mountain bike community do need to become more inclusive. Mm. And so we now have been, working in our diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative for three years. Mm -hmm. We've seen a lot of change, but we also are still running into quite a significant amount of feedback that we haven't let that bro culture go. (laughs) We still are, we still are not welcoming to new users. And so those new users Mm. might not come to Evergreen. Again, they might want to find their own experience. So how do we both allow that to happen, be more welcoming and create that tie? And we're doing that both in the BIPOC space, um, in the adaptive community adaptive bike space. Mm -hmm. And then this past year, I actually asked our own staff to, you know, you know, we always think about needing to change the culture of an organization to become more inclusive. But why do we think we can be successful at doing so when we're not doing that in our own lives? Mm. So this past year, I actually changed the focus to this giving the staff time uh, and opportunity to diversify their own lives and see what they Mm. would find and learn and then bring that back to the company. This upcoming year, we are focusing on specifically people of color. Mm -hmm. And so, again, being welcoming, continuing to do the have the tough conversations and doing the advocacy. Um, And then, you know, I have to say it, but as long as we as a community continue to build unsanctioned trail, I will have to do the dirty work to come up and step up for us. And that is still happening. And so we, the challenges we have with hikers and equestrians, conservation groups and the tribes are still very much based on comments that mountain bikers are creating damage. Hmm. That's, something that takes my time. It takes membership resources and money. I'd rather spend my time elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it, it is still a reality that our community needs to be honest about, grapple with, and realize that we're not going to be fully respected by those conservation groups until we stop that. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it's it's particularly challenging. I mean, it's not just an education thing, I'm sure. Um, it's It's you know, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to build these sanctioned trails where, you know, maybe you don't need those illegal trails anymore. And so, yeah, it's, that's a tough one. I'm sure it can be super frustrating. Yes, that's, it's difficult. Um, There are areas where there still haven't been um, recreation investments to create trails. Mm -hmm. So this is where we see that. But there are areas in our state where there are plenty of trails to ride now. And there's still this sort of like, 
idea that it's okay <laughs> to go into the woods and create your own experience. And yeah, again, we we won't have the same level of discussion at the table um, as long as that continues. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, uh, you make a great point about just being a more welcoming culture. And I think that's super important in terms of diversity. And it's important even just, I mean, I think everybody benefits from that, right? Like in terms of new riders, no matter who they are, what they look like. I mean, mountain biking can be intimidating to start, even if you do look like everybody else at the trailhead, you're still not like, I don't know. I wasn't anyway, it was uncomfortable. Always looking around like, is my bike good enough? Like, am I going to be too slow on the trail? I mean, it, I think if all of us think about what it was like to start mountain biking, then we could, we could definitely do a lot better in terms of welcoming others and like making sure that first experience for people is so much better. You are absolutely right. I think that goes both for people and the types of trails that we ride. Mm. Yeah. My my hope is that we all come to the realization that there is no bad trail <laughs> and there is no need to criticize one trail yeah. over another. They are all trails built by people with different opinion and let's respect those opinions and just celebrate the fact that we now have, at least in Washington State, miles and miles of trails to ride. Some of them are your style, some of them are not, but they're another person's style. So <laughs> both of them are just as good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, Yvonne, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us and, and filling us in on Evergreen. Uh, as always, your group is doing amazing work and it's always great to, to learn from that and see how others can apply those, those things as well. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Really fun. Well, you can connect with Evergreen at evergreenmtb.org uh, where you can learn more about the group and find out how you can get involved. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.